We appreciate you taking the time to join us today at Modax and hear Alex Wakefield, CEO of Longbow Advantage, speak on behalf of Rebus, which is powered and engineered by Longbow. Um, and if you don't mind, just for the sake of Q&A at the end, I hate to ask, but would it be possible to have Guys everyone move maybe move a little bit closer to the front? A little bit. Um, as opposed to just having Alex speak at you, we'd like to engage and speak with you. Uh, make this more interactive, and please feel free to ask as many questions so that you can get as much as out of this session as you possibly can. And again, thank you for joining us. Thank okay. you, Alex. Okay, we're up. All right. Thanks, Valerie. That was Valerie Bennett. She's uh, part of our business development team, so thanks for the introduction. Thanks for moving up, too. I appreciate you guys being good sports. We have 45 minutes. Um, unfortunately, I over-prepared, so my, my uh, talk might go a little longer. We'll see, but the next one doesn't start till 3.30, and he said he wasn't going to kick us out. So um, <clears throat> we'll start running through the material. So like Valerie said, I'm the CEO of Longbow Advantage and Rebus Data Services. Longbow historically is a supply chain execution consultant. We implement um, <clears throat> WMS labor management since 2002. In the past few years, we've started doing TMS implementation. So we focus very much in the execution side of the house. Rebus Data Services is our data aggregation, uh, data aggregation harmonization platform that we're going to talk about uh, towards the end of this talk. So I wanted to uh, kind of hit a couple things. This is the abstract. Obviously, I'm not going to read it. So you're either here because you strolled by and it looked interesting, or another session got canceled because nobody's traveling. So thank you for showing up. Um, but there are a couple pieces in the overview that I wanted to hit on. Number one, we'll talk about a lot about data. We'll talk about enterprise BI and how frequently you're in one of three stages. You're either excited to get it, you've just deployed and it's great, or you started to push a lot of data through it and it's really slow. Normally the phases you go through. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then the second part, we want to talk about data management and how to actually manage data we find architecturally more effectively, okay? So the first part of the talk, we're gonna get into some interesting material, so bear with me, and then the second part, we're gonna get into very specific use cases for we've had for our customers that talk about those four key takeaways. So the second part is very pragmatic. Each one of those bullet points, we have examples and use cases of where we've done those things, all right? So it's a little, kind of two different flavors of this presentation. The first part and the second part. So here's what I actually want to try to accomplish today. Number one, I hope that everyone learned something today. So we're going to cover some interesting material, but I hope nobody walks out of this room and says, I knew all that stuff. That's one of my goals. The other thing I really want you to do, because of the materials, is I want everybody to start thinking for yourselves and for your company. Because a lot of what I built You'll see how I tie it together, but it's really to get you to start thinking about where you use your time and how you use your time, and then how you apply that to data management. So we'll talk a lot more about that. And then one of the lines that we've started rolling out over the past six months is we're really trying to fix how companies consume their data. Because I fundamentally think it's a very disaggregated way of managing data, and there is a much, much better way to do it against all the existing momentum in the industry. So that's what I'm going to try to achieve. Now, a little thought experiment I want to start with. And this is kind of timely. I've used this for a few months now. Came up with this last year. But there was an article Friday, Saturday, whenever you read it, that Amazon is trying to get down to five-hour delivery in major metros 
certain products. But the reality is, when I go out and meet with customers and talk to people, Amazon can actually receive, process, fulfill, deliver an order faster than many, many major organizations can get their data. So in, this, in the warehouse, which is where we work often, in the warehouse, most people are using spreadsheets on yesterday's data, and it's very difficult to make decisions. So if you're using a spreadsheet, I would argue that it's very, you're not getting your data nearly as fast as someone can get you a physical, physical package, which I think is astounding. Because the technology available today and how you manage your data, I go to the Gartner Data and Analytics Conference every year, some of the technology out there is blazingly fast. And the fact that people cannot get their data and use it in real time or near real time is pretty crazy. So this is the backdrop for the first part of the talk. So I'm gonna come at you with a couple, with two different arguments as to why I think this is the case and why it's difficult to get access to your data and use it. And the first we'll talk about, if I point this in the right direction. Okay. The first we'll start with, yeah, I got it. The first we'll start with is a law called Amara's Law. So Moore's Law, most people know is Moore's Law. The number of transistors will double on a chip every 18 months. Amara's Law, also from the West Coast, was coined by a Stanford researcher and professor in 1965, I think, but essentially said, we tend to overestimate the effect of technology in the short run and underestimate its effect in the long run. So where we see that, this is important, because now we're gonna talk about the first piece of the presentation, managing data, and one of the theories I think where you're having problem, people are having problems getting data and managing it. So you can probably go find this chart somewhere, but the way we look at it is, there's a lot of innovative topics. There's a lot of hype around it. And all three of these are a little different. AI, virtual reality, autonomous vehicles. I didn't put machine learning on there. Virtual reality and autonomous vehicles are actually newer. AI is over 60 years old. It's not new. But we're gonna talk mostly about that. So I think there's tremendous hype cycles around these things. And the question is, where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your time to effectively manage in your operation. Good example on the underestimation side is GPS navigation. So we're gonna talk about that very quickly. All right, so as a former naval officer, GPS, triangulation, satellites, very exciting. So it was invented in 1973, and it is fairly pedestrian in its concept. Three different points put together, I can pinpoint anything on the Earth. That's cool. You need to know where ships are, trucks are, things like that. Um, but what's interesting is people get their hands on this data and the technology and the use cases that stem from something like this. I just looked up what some of the use cases of GPS are. Just create a list, I won't go deep. But those are the obvious ones. We can get into emergency responders because you can pinpoint where all the materials are that you need to get to an emergency. You can pinpoint the assets that need to get them there. You can pinpoint where the emergency is. The entertainment industry uses it extensively. Who knew you were gonna actually have a device on your wrist that could count the number of steps based on the perfect triangulation of where you are? The uses of GPS, I would argue, were not conceived when the technology first came out. It's how do we build upon 
existing foundations with hard data, and we can create really innovative approaches to using the data. So that's the way we look at it. So things like this are under underestimated in the short term, and in the long run, if you can find a workable solution, you can really make it uh, highly effective. And the last point, because this will get us into the next point as I go back to the left side of Amara's Law, hacking GPS is really hard. And it's hard because if it, was, if it happened, energy grids would go down, all sorts of things would go down. The network is highly protected. Right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit later on the other side. So now, as we go back into AI, hopefully we'll get into objective one and start teaching you guys some things, but there's a point to where I'm going. So I've titled these next charts, AI, chess, go, and reality. Because the first reason I think that people are having a difficult time access their data and use it is because I think that there's a lot of hype cycle and distraction around technologies that are unyet, that not yet proven. So I think, if I remember this correctly, I think this is the only thing I'm actually going to read from the slides. So I'm going to read this. The Navy revealed the embryo of an electronic computer today that ex expects we'll be able to walk, talk, see, write, reproduce itself, and be conscious of its existence. Later perceptrons, an AI type of process, will be able to recognize people and call out their names and instantly translate speech in one language to speech and writing in another language. That, to me, the exception of a couple terms that probably give away it's not from yesterday. That to me could have been said last week, last month, last year. That was actually written by the New York Times in 1958. So the, coin, the, the, AI, the term AI was coined in 1956 in Dartmouth as they started their research projects. But this quote to me is very interesting because I think over 60 years it proves that the notion of AI is essentially the same. I think you could have said that last week and people would have read it. Now let's go further on AI. So the next one is, if somebody could build a machine that could beat a human at chess, that would really start to get into human language and thinking. That would really start to get under human intelligence. Now, of course, that was also 1958 by those guys. But almost 40 years later, just under 40 years later, as we all probably know, IBM's Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov. So we're now into the AI is human intelligence. Ironically, the same year, it was predicted that, oh, you know what, that happened. I'm not sure that's AI. But if a computer could beat a grandmaster at Go, that would really get into human level AI thinking. That would really prove that AI is a human thing. Said by George. I don't know if it's ironic it was the same year or not, but said the same year. So what else can AI do? That happened in 2016, just less than 20 years after the statement in 97. AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol in 2016 in Go. I think four out of five games. So AI is winning at Go. It's winning at chess. It's also, we probably know, Watson beat Jeopardy champions, two people in 2013. So you build these things out. We're going to go a little deeper in AI. Build these things out. And now we have Deep Blue, Watson, and Google AlphaGo. And what else can these systems do now that we've built this out? And 
first big data was the new um, thing that was going to make AI amazing, and now it's machine learning and whatever it is. Well, those systems actually can't do anything else. That's all they can do. They're designed from the ground up to do something specific. And unlike a human, computers learn in very different ways. And none of that knowledge that the computer has is translatable, transferable to anything else. So a human might learn how to check, play checkers and associate that to chess. Every single one of these things is built from the ground up and cannot do anything else than exactly what it's designed to do. So as you've spent hundreds of people over many years, thousands of hours and tens of millions of dollars, that's what you get. And Watson is, sorry for anybody in IBM, Watson is a marketing term. Every project is a different project. All right, so that's a little bit about AI, a little primer. So now let's talk about image recognition, because I want people to understand how AI works as people train it, because there's a point at the end of this. So I've got to keep an eye on the clock. So with image recognition in a computer, essentially you feed an image into a computer and tell the computer what it is. And the computer then looks at an image pixel by pixel, different shadings and variations, and predicts what an image is based on each individual picture. pixel. It does not look at the overall image or the context of the image. So you can very easily put some funky yellow glasses on Hugh Jackman and turn him into Kiefer Sutherland. So we in the room know that's still Hugh and know that's still Daniel Craig and not Meg Ryan. But the computer, it's called adversarial examples, the computer is very easy to hack because they look at different pixels and the shading in the pixels, pixels is what determines its prediction. So how does it do it? I'm going to hurry up a little bit here. So to a computer, you look at the images on the left. This makes it a little clearer. To us, it's fuzz or noise or whatever you want to call it. But you might be able to say a little bit of robin in here, a little bit of cheetah in here, a little bit of centipede, and a little bit of jack. These to the computer, that's what they predict it to be. And uh, this is on the, on the left. I forget what the, the type of uh, approach is. But this is how people adversarially can fool computers. And if you picked up the Wall Street Journal today, I think it was page A6, lots of states are outlawing facial recognition, and one of the companies doesn't allow algorithm auditing. This is why it's super easy to fool a computer. Now, let me explain the next one. The next one is when you, when you actually create an adversarial example for the cat, and you change some of the shadings of the pixels, you can pretty easily fool a computer into thinking that image on the right with 99% reliability is guacamole as opposed to a cat. So why is that interesting? Because us on the right, humans, we look at it as a cat. But to a computer, it looks like avocado. With a higher degree of certainty, that's a cat. So now let's talk about how these things are trained. I mentioned training of AI and how they're trained. Quick history on how they're trained. Originally, computer scientists would upload an image to a computer, a 1,000 images of a cat, and say, that's a cat, computer. And the computer would say, OK, I got it. I'm going to analyze it. I got it. Eventually, computer scientists got sick of doing this. They had better things to do. They employed graduate students to do it. Graduate students got sick of it. They employed interns and hourly people to do their job. And eventually, they said, much like in the Matrix, 
where they found the ultimate source of power by tapping into humans and tricking them into an alternate universe. You know who does all the training now? You ever seen this? So when you click you're not a robot, you type in your words, and you select the numbers on the right, everybody's training AI. That's how it's done now. So everybody in the room, and everybody who's using Google or wherever this pops up, everybody is an AI training employee. You're making the, you're making the system better in reading pictures and making predictions. Now, why is this important? I thought this was important. <laughs> we'll get to that at the end. I skipped one slide. So my view on this is, and I don't know if you came to Modex in 2018, but Gaffigan was the comedian, and I love Jim Gaffigan. And I'm not a calculus expert, but I think everyone's lying. And I wanted to pull the covers back a little bit on AI, because there's lots of projects out there that are being worked, and we'll talk about decision-making in a second. I actually don't think everybody's lying, but I needed to segue into this slide that talks about calculus. So I don't know if anybody, I'm sure somebody knows who this is. I wouldn't if I saw a picture of it, but I had to build a slide. So this guy invented calculus, and we'll break down, maybe you can guess. It's the father of, father of modern physics, three laws of motion. This ought to do it with an apple on the head, right? This is Newton. So Sir Isaac Newton <laughs> founded calculus, the father of modern physics, is one of the smartest scientists, mathematicians the Western world has ever known. He's up there with Einstein, and we all learn about him. But he also believed something else. He also believed that he could turn lead into gold. So I would argue that if you have one of the smartest people in the history of Western society who fully believed he could turn lead into gold, I'm sure everybody else believed him too. But this is one of the things he believed. So as you go through these first four accomplishments, you're looking at really smart people that do lots of complex projects and believe what they're talking about, fully believe it, and present to you. I would argue that you really have to make sure you understand the projects that you're undertaking. And I don't know if you know, blockchain's still a thing. I don't hear it talked about very much anymore. But we always have AI and machine learning and big data, data science, blockchain thrown in front of us. Now, I don't know how many people are hyper-technical in here, but I think we're mostly in supply chain. And I think that we have a, not a lot of time on our hands, and we have to make good decisions about where we use our time. So I think part of the problem of accessing data and getting good use out of data is all this noise and these projects are flying around in the ether, and you have to figure out where you're going to spend your time. So now we're going to transition. So that's theory number one, is that I think there's a lot of things out there that sound really cool, that really smart people believe can be done. I would make sure things can be done, and we're accomplishing things before we go way down that path. So now, I've used some of these slides in the past, last November, but I want to get into a little bit of decision making, and then we'll get a little bit into architecture, because it's actually important, I think, for supply chain leaders, people who want to be leaders, people that are going to remember objective number two, think for your companies and yourselves. So I want to make sure, some people might be in IT and ops, I usually do a show of hands, but I'm a little tight on time. So I want to make sure that everybody can ask the right questions of the technology team. 
That's the point of this section, is make sure you understand how data is structured and be able to ask the right questions. It's really essential in making effective decisions, and it will tremendously, in my opinion, improve how you interact with technology and your speed to ROI. So I'll bring in one more piece of research here. Everybody probably knows Good to Great by Jim Collins. This is great by choice. I don't know who read it, 2012. But there are some notions in this book that I really like that applies to decision making that I think are really germane to how we actually decide where to spend our time and resources in supply chain. So he comes up with this notion, he comes up with this notion of 10x companies. And 10x companies have beat for a span of 15 years the market, their industry, and a peer in their industry. So that he can say, I outperformed the market, I outperformed the industry, and then I outperformed a comparison company. And those, I don't know what it was, seven or eight companies float to the top, and he has a number of different entrenched uh, myths, and I gotta talk about two of them, and then he defines a level five type of leader. So the first type of entrenched myth that he found through all this research, he looked at like 30 years of data, narrowed it down to, like I said, seven or eight companies. Myth number one, most successful leaders are bold risk-taking visionaries. Not true, at least not in the companies he researched. The truth is that the best leaders found something that worked, figured out why it worked, and then bet on that. And they built on, this, and they built on what actually worked. The second one that I think is important for us is that innovation distinguishes 10x companies, as he calls them. Not true. It's not that they, weren't, they were less innovative, but his classic less innovative company is Southwest. Southwest, as we know, is a successful organization. Basically copied everything from Pacific Coast Airlines or whatever. They copied their entire business model during regulation. They flew out there and copied absolutely everything. Southwest innovates almost nothing, but they are hugely successful. So the last thing he defines is, what is a great leader? They have level five ambition, as he calls it. So fanatic discipline, they're gonna focus on something. Productive paranoia, I love the juxtaposition of words. I'm paranoid about losing my business, but I'm gonna make it uh, to competitors, but I'm gonna make it really productive. But I'm gonna talk about empirical creativity because we're talking about data, and we're talking about where to spend your time and how to be creative. So his notion around empirical creativity is fire bullets and then cannonballs. And this is what sparked my memory of that, this book last year, is that the best leaders do a bunch of little things and when something hits, they invest in scale behind it. So when you think about how to make decisions internally, this is what I would argue. Make sure you understand when something works and why it works, and the ability to scale it. Number two, innovation may or may not be interesting. Don't get caught up on innovating. Don't get caught up on being the first to do something. And then number three, once you've invested in certain areas and you find something that works, put a lot of weight behind it, right? So this, to me, is how people should thinking, be thinking about making decisions. So do not abdicate your responsibility. This is a life, I don't know why I put this in here, just funny looking picture to make everybody feel like they should get up and make decisions. All right, so you guys all have responsibility. So now we're gonna get into a little bit about architecture. This is from the Gartner Data and Analytics Conference last March. It's again in two weeks, but this is my favorite quote from the week. We get a call about analytics and end up in architecture. So what does this mean? Hello, Gartner. Can you help me figure out what my OTIF is? Sure, where's your data coming from? Uh, I don't know, WMS, ERP, TM, I don't know. Okay, 
Well, what are you doing when you pull it out? Where does it go? How do you handle it? Where are you, where are you storing it? How are you pulling it? How are you writing algorithms against it? They cannot, you cannot actually get to analytics until you understand how the data is managed. You cannot. So we're going to talk about this. I'm going through these a little quickly. So this, you can go Google anything. No need to take a picture. Nobody's taking a picture. People usually take pictures of this slide. You don't need to. Just go search data and analytics architecture, click images, and you'll have a whole host you want to pick from. You can go find any one of these. But what this is, this is, this is basically a chart that says, all right, where's my data? What am I doing with it? Where am I putting it? How am I processing it? And how am I giving it to people? The first thing I want to tell you about this chart is this right here, this is where Enterprise BI plays. That's it. That's all they do. So when, you talk, when I talk about my three stages of Enterprise BI at the beginning, when you get to stage three, it slows down. That's why. Because none of it stores any data. You have to connect it to something that normally takes data from somewhere else. And I don't know if you guys know how that's set up or not, but I think you should. So for anybody that reads slides, you might notice I titled this <laughs> Chief Data Officer and Chief Technology Officer Science Experiment. I, found that, I thought this was funny, so I found this slide. So the reason I called it a science experiment is because for a science experiment, you need a kid and a grudgingly participant adult. Think about the project. and <laughs> One half-baked idea of dubious merit. I just like the uh, chart in the middle. As time goes on towards the due date of your project, the yelling and crying really, really increases. So. The conclusion is everyone hates the science fair. This came out like four years ago. I thought it was really funny. I also actually thought it was pretty applicable because this chart not only represents the end, which is where BI plays, but what it really represents is, depending on the size of your organization, this is going to take eight figures minimum, probably five years. I think I've talked to two companies in three and a half years that have ever built anything that looks like this. But most of the companies I talk to are working on something like this. This is a big part of the reason you're still running on spreadsheets, because this is not a good way to manage data. And when you think about distribution data and how to get access to real-time information, what you really need, you need, where's my data? WMS, TMS, ERP, time and attendance. What am I doing with it? Where am I putting it? I highlighted NoSQL, because that's what we use. We talk about that. And how am I showing it? That's it. That's all you need. So our thesis is if you can find a system that does all this, I don't think there's many, you're going to be much better off. The only analog I can think of is you think CRM, think Salesforce. I don't know how many IT groups own Salesforce. Not many. And Salesforce came out before, defined CRM before this chart ever existed. I don't know if CRM would be an industry if it came out after this chart existed. But I think CRM is a way better way to manage data. So now we're going to transition into what we think and how we think data actually should be managed. Because we talked about spending your time on the right things, not getting caught up in what I would refer to as the hype cycle and the latest trend or technology in pie in the sky. And we talked about architecture and why I think most large companies have a problem accessing their data. So, when we talk about full stack data management, and we're going to get the supply chain here. The most effective way to do this from our perspective is merging technology and supply chain knowledge together. Because when you think about data ingestion, where's my data and how am I getting it? 
You have to have the IT team. Everybody, you have to have the IT team. It's a partnership. Put the two together and it's the best way to do it. So theoretically, the IT team should know the data structures and how to get the data, but the operational team has to define what data you need. Too much, you're too slow, too little, you don't get a good answer. Both people have to work on this one together. Database management, I don't think anybody in supply chain gets to pick database that you run on, but I will talk about that a little bit. But data prep, how do you actually harmonize your data? How do you make it usable? How do you clean it? Super important, because I'm not sure the IT team usually knows how to actually cleanse the data. I have one slide on cleansing data. I better get to. Industry-specific algorithms come out of the box with some algorithms. And again, visualization, this is where your BI guys play, right here. They don't do anything else. So now, the last thing I want to talk about on this is, again, I'm a big proponent of NoSQL databases, which stands for not only structured query language, but it's architected in such a way that you can call back data in a fraction of the time if you call it back against a relational database. And almost everything you're operating in today is probably a relational database. All your production systems are. So when you actually architect a system to manage your data end-to-end -end, and you have a high-performing database, we think this is a much better way to manage data. And by the way, it's a lot more cost-effective. So get back to our Gartner quote. This is why I wanted to go through the architecture piece, because it's important for people to understand. You have to understand what's slowing progress down sometimes and what right questions to ask so you guys can focus where you can win. So now we'll transition into 15 minutes left. See if I can leave a couple minutes for Q&A. So now what I want to do is talk about use cases. And all of these are built out that we have in place for customers. Some of these are just customer slides that I got permission to use. They're all built out on the customer, um, in customer use cases. So the first bullet, if you remember, was interact with data in a more pragmatic manner. So I think pragmatic is those four highlighted yellow blocks. Where's my data? What do I do with it? Where do I put it? How do I show it? So the first challenge we talk about, this is this WMS example. I don't know if we have ERP in here. Okay. But normally, the way we look at harmonization of data is every WMS calls a function something different. So you might have um, a name ID in each one of the fields. At w you just turned me up. Each one of the WMSs. So it's difficult to query if you don't understand the field names. And when you start to put a lot of historical data, WMS generates a ton of information, it starts to slow down. It gets very difficult. So the way we approach this is talking about extracting data. We extract the data, and we essentially rename it into common sense tags, can harmonize it with other data sets, put it in functionally oriented collections, as we call them, so you can start to cut up your data into certain operationally focused areas and start to run your algorithms against a harmonized, pre-structured data set, which really speeds up the usage. So now, on bullet three, you don't have to be an expert in this table structure in the field names. You structure it such a way that the business can use it and run regular queries on a common sense um, term. And again, as you put more and more data in the system, if you've built it right, and look, NoSQL databases are architected in a way that allows you to perform much, much faster, you could start to analyze years worth of data in one spot. And I don't know how many people have it, you know, production versus archive versus 
I don't think I'm going to talk about data lakes today. But this is how we approach it for our, uh, all our customers. So specific use case, this is a customer slide that he presented in uh, November. I think this is his exact slide. I just changed it around. I don't think we added this image. But here was his challenge. He was deploying WMS. And Enterprise BI required mapping from scratch and had frequent scalabilities issues. Okay? So the one thing I like to talk about here, and the reason I put scratch on that one is because, not last year, but the year before, I was at the Gartner Conference again, Data and Analytics, and one of the leading BI platforms, always in the Gartner Leader Quad, there's a lot of them up there. Chief Marketing Officer was behind the podium and said, hey, we're all good, we all start with the same thing, I have my prop, and walked out with a blank sheet of paper. Started with a blank sheet of paper. What that means is they're showing up and you're telling them what to build and you're building it from scratch. Which is cool if you're the consulting company or the analyst or the software company that makes a lot of money on this $200 billion industry. We were visiting a customer in January. They actually happened to use this BI tool and they really like it across their entire business. But they tried for six months to get this solution working in the warehouse so they could just have regularly automatically refresh data sets and status charts that scroll through the warehouse. They tried for six months, couldn't figure it out, and gave up. I told them I would do it in three days because it happens automatically in a solution that's built for environments that work. I was, gave up after six months. That's not what this is. That was a different story. The reason that they decided to go with our solution, Rebus, is because in the WMS they were using, we already had thousands of tables mapped. By the way, this is his slide verbatim. I'm just presenting it. They already had thousands of tables mapped. So instead of trying to build it out in their corporate BI tool, which we'll talk more about later, it would have taken an estimated year. It took us three weeks to go live in these guys. And by the way, these are, I don't know, this is a $5 billion division of one of the largest CPG companies globally. He presented with me in November. The other thing he was able to do because of scalability issues is the solution he was going to use internally, they had to connect it to archive because you can't connect a BI plot tool to production. You can't because if you write a bad query, you're not going to be shipping anything. But we always connect to production because it's the only way you can actually get near real-time information. We just constantly flow the data. Huge amounts of data constantly flowing. And it's now in one place as opposed to on 15 different boxes. I don't know how many they're doing one per site and in a data lake or a data warehouse or whatever the flavor of the month is. This took us three weeks to stand up, and these guys are our best user. We'll talk more about them. So that's from an interacting with data more pragmatically. Because I think if you actually work with your data much more effectively, you can achieve things in a much shorter time frame. And again, you get back to quantified successes. These are all things that are already out in the marketplace and working. So cleaning data was interesting to me because I was talking to uh, I was talking to some industry events last year, and they said cleaning data is a big thing. People were requesting to hear about cleaning data. I was like, wow, that sounds really boring. But people want to hear about cleaning data. Now, cleaning data is really hard. And I told you the AI story, because think about AI. Think about Deep Blue and Watson and AlphaGo only can do that. Think about training the images on AI and how they look at images. The reason data cleansing is so hard and people look to machine learning and AI is because if you train it once, that's all it can do. I was watching a machine learning talk last week. 
one of the foremost experts in machine learning. He's up in Washington. He was getting interviewed by Eric Schmidt. He goes, if you teach, big proponent of machine, if you teach a machine to do this, it can't do that with a banana. It doesn't know how. You have to, you have to program every individual thing that it can do. So my view on data cleansing is the reason it's so hard, people might go, instead of Walmart, wall dash, mart, wall space, mart, Walmart, all one word. These are all incredibly difficult to report upon and clean. So here's where it gets really interesting. We turned on one of our customers, found that they were actually logging almost 10,000 duplicate orphan erroneous records every hour. Pharmaceutical distribution company, huge volumes, huge volumes. The reason we found this, which is really interesting, that I do the solution, I'm jumping to the solution here. Right? So they had 600,000 records that needed to be purged. They had three full-time DBAs on staff for three years that were supposed to manage the databases of WMS. When we turned Rebus on and we started sucking in data and looking at it, our consultants understand what the data structure should look like, what the fields look like, and we can identify duplicates. And we're pulling in production, we're pulling in archive. One of our guys said, hey, whoa, whoa, time out, something doesn't look right here, this doesn't look good. So not only were we able to blow away the bad data, but we fixed the archive rules in WMS to solve the problem. They have nine DCs, 75 people per DC. The WMS latency went down and the performance went way up. So even if you think every person saves three and a half, 3.75 hours each month in latency because they're not waiting on the WMS, it's a half million, half million dollars a year. I'm gonna tell you, we charge them less than $10,000 to fix the whole thing. And it took us like three days. We fixed an issue that was three years old and tremendous latency in the system because our people knew what to look for and they knew how the data tables were supposed to be structured. You can get tremendous value out of something when you know what you're looking at and you have the right tool to look at it. Okay, so let's talk about real time. Oh, yeah, so. I don't know if anybody, I'm sure someone in the room owns, uses Tableau. I don't know if anybody in the room is from Tableau. Salesforce, I guess. Uh, anyway, this is again, I'm presenting a customer slide. He presented this in November, so forgive me for using names. And Tableau does some beautiful charts. I'm not gonna say they're not, they don't have a good product, but they're not great in supply chain execution. So what's really interesting about this chart is this guy that created this chart wanted to use Tableau to report against WMS, and he was up to 10 sites. So this is a 50-site rollout. Stopped after 10 and said, I can't see anything. Can't see what's going on in my operation. And I had personally presented to these guys 16 months before we signed them up. And we lost that deal, which sucked, but that's a different story. But I showed up, he watched me present last year at ProMat, and grabbed me afterwards and said, if what Alex said is true and you can do it, we're gonna sign. Six weeks, six weeks, fastest deal I've ever done with a multi-billion dollar global CPG company, huge name. Six weeks, signed the agreement. Because what he knew was, what, what he really knew was five years ago, he owned Tableau inside this company. It was his in supply chain. The corporate team took it over and he said it slowed down. He didn't like that. And he actually presented at their user conference. He loves, he loves the solution and he knows it forward and backward. So these guys, he knew right away what we could do and how we could turn it on. So again, his team told him it was gonna take a year to stand it up. 
Took us four weeks or something like that to stand these guys up. And we're going to talk more about them later because I actually have some slides. Okay? All right, this is an interesting one. Um, this one is personally close to me. This is a I don't know, top 10 global food CPG that I sold WMS to back in 2011 or so. Uh, anyway, they were working on this issue in 2012, 2013. How do I get better visibility into my yard? Do I use yard management? Do I, what do I do? How do I get better visibility? So I don't know why it took them seven years. I was surprised when my team told me they solved this problem. Anyway, they have nine DCs run by four or three PLs and no visibility and manual spreadsheets every single week. It took us like six hours to write this thing. So you know, that would have cost them less than $2,000 to save $75,000 a year that's now real time and nobody has to waste their time anymore. It's all just part of this. I mean, by the way, we don't, well, I'll get to that on the last slide. So this one was, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years old. Took us about six hours to fix that one, right? All right, I'm gonna move through this. So control tower for us, sorry about that. Control tower we look at in a different way because if you look at your data and you look at the structure and you have technical, uh, uh, technical people on it, there's multiple levels that you can go after. Everybody thinks about the operational level. How am I making sure my operation's efficient? We look at it a different way. What if you could actually optimize your WMS or your production instance. Because now I can look at the way this is configured and how efficiently the, um, how efficiently the functions inside the solution are running. So we create a way to audit the effectiveness of production instances. The last thing we do is we look at infrastructure monitoring so we can see how effectively your hardware is actually performing. We just had a debate of one of our largest customers around whether it's an application or an infrastructure issue. This is a super easy way to figure out which it is. All right. Now, I like the first bullet of this chart, and this is my buddy's slide, the first bullet of this chart, because we think, we've got some friends out there, you know, we do a lot of different WMS implementations. Those WMSs are really fantastic. I mean, this happens to be a blue yonder example, but they are great technologies that run your warehouse. They're just not designed to manage data effectively. So I'll go through a couple slides, a couple charts here. These guys put their WMS deployment on pause, again, to implement Rebus because they had no visibility into their warehouse operations. Two and a half minutes. So I'm gonna run through a couple of these and just explain to you what they are. All right, so they use this in their warehouse, wave planner dashboard, by status, uh, by case, what are my waves? by cube, this is by hour updating in real time what's happening. This happens to be like thousands of rows long and as you enter data, search terms, it'll instantly filter it. So you can real time analyze what's going on in your warehouse. And again, you can do this in any production system. The next one, inbound trailers. So they're looking at inbound trailers. These are their 10 DCs. This, whatever this one is, is 179 down here. So this is their trailer. They just needed better visibility into their inbound trailers. So here's your trailer status by vendor, hot trailer boat. Now what's cool about this is every time you click on one of these DCs, it cascades down here. So the chart's always updating in real time. By the way, these guys train themselves on this product, on their own, whatever, talking to us about training. They just watch a bunch of videos on, our, on the website. They were able to go train themselves on how to use this on their own, and we don't charge our users. They have like 90 users every day that are just pounding through this stuff. Work queue, and I didn't put, pick, I didn't put uh, cuts on here, but work queue, this shows again, by this particular DC here, what is my open task by area, 
what are my open tasks by hour, and it constantly updates what's going on in my operation. And now I've given my supervisors, my shift managers, my warehouse managers, a tremendous tool to make changes intraday, minute by minute if they want to, to completely audit the WMS and make changes. The other one I didn't, I didn't show is, is cuts. They do cuts in real time. All right, we're getting close. So this, this one is one of our, uh, our major customers. Again, I mean, these guys are you know, top 10 global CPG. Right? So what we did with them is inside Rebus, we actually have a labor management system. But we replaced one at six sites, cost justified another 24. It took us four months to implement those four sites of labor. It took us seven months to turn on 41 sites of analytics. And again, they avoided, they avoided the requirement to use, let's call it a leading labor management solution, justified 24 additional. And again, they were able to avoid using a static BI, self-sufficient in weeks. Right? So this project, if you know anything about some of these technologies, is a fraction of the cost. The last thing I want to talk about is what we call full stack data services, because this kind of brings it all together. This is one customer, pharmaceutical distribution, that all the challenges on the left in one system, we solve all these challenges. Because we talk about hundreds of millions of records that are duplicate and orphaned that we're able to clean up in a matter of a week to speed up their WMS. By the way, these guys co-presented with us as well. All these people are available forever. Um, noticeable performance, uh, WMS performance. They have general managers. They have a campus-type environment up in one of their major metros. So the general managers would sort of hoard their labor and hide their labor and get their work done all day long. This creates total visibility at the executive level across all their sites. So now, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, one site's ahead, one site's behind. Great. Shift some over. So they cut 15% of their overtime, 3,000 hours, and they eliminated a couple FTEs. We don't charge for users. I might have mentioned that. So they give their inbound carriers visibility into outbound orders coming off their dock. So they've tremendously reduced congestion time at their dock. And on-time order processing visibility, they've improved their overall on-time order. Oh, and by the way, they give out their IDs. They create IDs for their customers, so like J&J &J and Pfizer and Glee. All those guys log into the system and see status into their orders. So they use it as a customer service portal because they can see real time into their orders. And I don't know if they want this or not. I didn't put this on the last side, but their CEO looks at this stuff all the time, too, on his phone. Just sees their logistics company, effectively. CEO looks out on his phone all the time to see the regular status. Right, so anyone throughout the organization can have the complete same visibility into the entire organization. So as we wrap up, that's the culmination. When you look at the use cases, and when you effectively manage data, and you have proven ROI, and you have proven projects that work, we have seen customers throw tons of weight and resource behind those successes to tremendous advantage. Once they wrap their minds around how you manage data, how you effectively build a system to do it, how you would evaluate it, and again, you think back to the AI, and you think back to some of the objectives, Make sure you're looking at what's real and what's effective. Because I think people can get distracted, and really smart people are doing you to tell, telling you to do really, really creative, high-level things that may or may not be turning lead into gold. That, I'm skipping that one. So the way we view this is we really want to fix the way companies are consuming data. 
So if this was a crowded room, we'd say, join the data revolution, everybody would cheer, but it's not. We're all part of the, scared of the coronavirus. So anyway, thank you for the time. 3.30 is the next one, so I can still, I'm um, 2.49 over, so we can still do some Q&A if you guys are interested. Thanks. <laughs>